This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. When we talk about life management or focus or attention management, I guess at some point we all need to identify, too, what we're going to focus our attention on. Um, It it was an interesting find. I I was reading a book called Essentialism by uh, Greg McEwen, and one of the things that he taught in the book is uh, the word priority – is a word that, uh, you know, we've all heard of priorities, right? We've got to have our priorities straight. Well, the word priority has, uh, by definition, means the singular one thing that's most important. And up until really about 200 years ago or so, priority was always a singular term, meaning you have one priority. But we live in a country, a day and age, um, a world that believes that we have multiple number ones. And we now have to prioritize our priorities. And then we have a belief that not only do we have more than one priority, we have five priorities, and then we need to make plans for our five priorities to make sure that we get our five top priorities done every day. And then that stretches to, okay, that's just your work priorities. Now you have your home priorities, and then you have your personal life priorities, And we then assume that now we can go choose what of all of our 15 priorities are the most biggest priority. Come on. Have we not completely messed that up? In the end, I'm convinced um, if I gave you uh, two years to live, let's say you had received a diagnosis, you knew you had two years to live. What would eventually – what would become your number one priority? What's the number one thing you would do if you knew you had two years to live? How would your life change? How would you reorganize? Now, let's let's forget the two years. Let's just say you've got two months to live. You have two more months in your life of existence on this earth. What would be your priority really? What's going to be the key that – that report to your boss, you got to get that report done? Well, I mean, it's an important report. I mean, I do have two months. Okay, forget the two months. Let's say you have two weeks to live. You're down to two weeks. Two weeks of your life, what is the number one priority for you? What is the, what matters? Now, let's forget the two weeks. Let's say you had two days to live. So isn't it amazing when we shrink your life, your priorities get so clear. They're so clear. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. So you might want to just start identifying very clearly what your number one priority thing is. What's the one thing you would do and spend your last two days doing? How about your last two hours? What would you spend doing your last two hours of your life? Because whatever you do in your last two days or two hours is probably the priority of your life, period. That's the only priority. Everything else, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be done. You need to mow the lawn, right? You bought a house. But don't pretend like it matters. It doesn't matter to the same level as your priority. And uh, why I bring that up is because if we could actually dial in our attention – 
even higher, but we don't have our attention focused on something that's important, then what good is having more attention? What good is having more focus if it's not focused on something that is absolutely essential, right? You don't want more time, more focus, more energy on something that's not important, do you? I mean, I think all that would create for you is more guilt, more confusion, more misunderstanding, more frustration, more exhaustion. So maybe the first thing we ought to do is identify what direction we should be heading, what's our true north, and then once we know what true north is, let's worry about our efficiencies. Let's get really good at going the direction we're supposed to go. But a lot of us are are really just trying to improve our efficiencies, and we have no clue where we're going. To be really efficient at something we shouldn't be doing is just plain crazy. We don't need to be awesome at useless stuff. We just, our life, we don't have the time, especially if we only have two months, two weeks, two days, or two hours. You know, when we've got two years, we can mess around a little bit more, we think. But it can all change on a dime, right? And um, so what are you doing to make sure that your most important priority, singular priority, is first? Um, And, you know, how do we take these ideas to those priorities? That's actually – because I had taught time management. I taught communication skills in corporate America. And what I realized in the end is to make corporations more efficient, not half as important as making our most important priorities work for us. So anyway, we are uh, doing what we can to help you focus on what's most important for you. So answer the question. What are What is your top priority, singular? What is it? And whatever it is, I'd have it top of mind, top of list, top of your day. Doesn't mean you don't have to work. You do. But it also doesn't mean that in the middle of the day, you can't still take care of your priority your number one thing. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Whether it's the fear of failure or fear of success or fear of not being good enough, fear of not adding up, fear is driving a lot of our lives. And in the end, um, I, I really, I think that it's not, it's not our best self, right? I mean, our highest self is not a fearful you know, fret, fretful person, our highest self, our essence, the greatest part of who we are is, uh, is not this fearful little being. And so I think one of the problems is it's a, like our good doctor was Theo was telling us before that it's really just, it's a construct. It's, it's, it's one thing to be fearful of, you know, an animal that's going to harm you. But that makes sense, kind of on a visceral, physiological level, a biological level, you need to survive. But a lot of us are now misconstruing that chemistry, those feelings, and actually inventing problems for ourselves. Uh, I've heard people discuss the fact that we're, we're, humans are one of the only animals that experience chronic anxiety and fear. <laughs> we're the only ones that are chronically stressed. And a lot of us are so stressed about things that aren't even real. It's about possible things. Like, what if I can't get a job? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And we spend so much time focused on our future or so much time not getting over our past. 
and instead we just never stay present in the now. And I, I honestly think it's a trap. It is a trap that actually is designed to keep us from progressing and being and offering the best thing we can bring to this world. Because if I'm obsessed about what has to happen tonight in my meeting at 5 o'clock or whatever, then um, I am not here right now. And when I'm not here right now, I suffer and you suffer. And no wonder we would stress. You should stress if you're not in the now. I really think your biology is saying, yeah, man, you really ought to focus on the now, dude. Because if you don't, you're going to be eaten by a dinosaur or whatever. You're going to get killed. So we sit, we struggle, we obsess, and then we make up a lot of stories. And we actually use the stories without thinking about them, and we keep using them. Because somebody hurt us in the past, then we have to prevent them, uh, somebody similar to that person. Not really, but I mean, I see this all the time with couples where, because I had a bad history with my um, spouse, then I'm going to try to prevent any history like that going forward. So I will, I will tend to see everybody I date as somebody that could hurt me like my spouse. Imagine how you date somebody if you're always dating out of fear, if you're always dating out of your worst uh, kind of side instead of your healthiest essence. What kind of partner do you find? And what kind of presentation do you give if it's always a presentation out of fear? So how do we overcome this? I think one of the best things that every one of us could focus a little bit more on is let's start staying more present in the now in our lives. Let's actually be where we are at any given point. Let's actually be present. Let's, let's have our head in that conversation. Let's have our head in that game. I have seen uh, over and over with my life and my own clients that I am so afraid of things that could happen, but the reality is if they did, the worst case scenario, think of it, the worst case scenario of what could happen to you or your family, if it happened, you'd actually be, you'd, you'd get through it. You wouldn't be fine, but you'd, you'd get through it. If you lost somebody that you could never imagine losing, and they were taken in a tragic accident, you would get through it. If you talk to anybody that's done that and gone through such a tragedy, they eventually get through it. And they adapt and they cope and they learn and they grow. So And so would you. Now, it doesn't accepting the fact that you could get through it doesn't mean you love someone less and it doesn't mean you can't... Um, that you know that that life's not good, but wouldn't it make much more sense to instead of worrying about what could happen, to actually be present with the person you love today, to love them, to care for them, to spend the time, to deepen that love. And so, one of the rules might simply be: the minute you start to worry about the what ifs or what what if this happened, maybe that's a sign that you need to get in the now. Now's the time to live your life. Now's the time to experience and grow and develop. Now's the time to exercise your integrity. Now, now, now. Not tomorrow, not next year, not someday. Now, let's do something now. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that I have found as I work with clients and we talk about their change is it's easier really to talk about what you don't want to do anymore right, than what you actually do want to become. 
if that makes sense. It's it's easier for us to pick and nitpick on the negative, what we don't like, than it is to actually identify what we do like. And so one of the things I have found in trying to create change is to take more of what's called an appreciative approach to uh, the change. They call it appreciative inquiry. It's a form of consulting that many um, uh, organizational consultants might do as they go in and look at your organizational ills, the things that need to be fixed. And the big key here is to focus on what works. So when you have talked or thought about something, in fact, right now, pick something in your life you'd like to do better. Pick something you'd want to change, whether it's healthier eating habits, you know, being more patient with your children. What, um, what, what we do is we all want some movement, some change in our lives. And so one of the first keys to making that change take place is to identify what works. In the past, what has made it so you could be more patient with your children? In the past, what have you noticed has worked to help you be a more patient parent if that's what you're trying to change? Or if you're trying to change your eating healthy, uh, healthier habits, um, what in the past has made it easier for you to eat healthier? So notice what I'm asking you to do is go back to the past to where it has worked. I'm not asking you to go back to the past where it didn't work. Go back where it was good, where you were getting progress. What has worked in the past when you were successfully living that principle? What have people close to you or who? Uh, what have they done to live this principle? So part of the key is we're going to go backwards and up in the past to where it worked. And the benefit of going there is that you already have a vast array of information, of data from yourself and others about what works. You don't need to go put together a bunch of new stuff to do yet. Let's first go shore up everything that used to work. Then another thing is you're starting to work on being more patient with your kids. You can start to notice today what worked today. What made it easier for you today to get to be more patient with your with your child. So if in the past we start identifying a list of things that used to work and in the present what's working today. Again, you don't want to aggregate a huge list of well that didn't work, that didn't work. Instead, what did work today? Well, when I'm when I come home and I sit in my garage and spend a few minutes before I will run into the house and just find out what my goals are, calm myself down. That helps me go in the house and be a better dad. That worked today. Um, Getting some help and support from your spouse, that worked today. Uh, Noticing when I was starting to get a little less impatient and putting myself in timeout for a few minutes, that totally worked today. And then the goal would then be to identify what, what would you be doing in your life. So if you had, if I had a magic wand and we could make it you're perfectly healthy, you're, you're a perfectly patient parent, everything is going great, what would your day look like next week? How would your goal, if you were already living it, of being a perfectly patient parent, what would that look like in the future? And so now we can go up to the future and start to say, if it were working, what would I be doing differently? When my kid's pouring his milk all over the floor, how would I handle that differently? Ah, well, I would breathe through it. Uh, we'd calmly, if he had done it disobediently, we'd put him in timeout. We'd have a process for how to handle that. We would have read four other books on how to manage um, some of these behavioral issues that our child might be going through. 
but really starting to work through what it looks like when it when people do it. You might ask other parents what they do and figure out what works for others. So by focusing on what works, it's different than focusing on and knowing everything that you've tried to work on your kid. Um, and I know it seems like it's easier to find the things that aren't working, but the reality is there's a lot of days you're very patient with your child. It really is. And there's certain days that you're more patient than other days. So there's answers inside of each of those days. In the past, what has worked? In the present, what worked today? And in the future, if it was all working for you, what would it look like? Basic, simple tools to help all of us uh, be a little healthier and, and create better results in our own lives. That's what we're trying to do to just be a little bit better today by focusing on the appreciative side, the stuff that's actually working, instead of just uh, beating up what doesn't work. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Nearly one in four children in the United States are in single-parent households, and in the majority of two-parent households, both parents are working. Yet child care is generally unaffordable and paid leave is not available to most U.S. parents. Uh, is the U.S. stingier with child care and maternity leave than the rest of the world? Well, here to help us answer that question is uh, Professor Joya Mishra, who is a professor of sociology and public policy at the University of Massachusetts. Her research and teaching primarily focus on social inequality, including inequalities by gender, race, ethnicity, sexuality, sexuality, and educational levels. Uh, Joya Mishra, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, this is a really big deal, I think. And, um, you know, conservatives, liberals, whatever you have, it seems like it just makes sense that we need to find a way if most of us are working. We've got to find a way to take care of our kids when we're when we're working. And also when we have new kids, new babies um, create an opportunity for parents to bond, to be with their family. Uh, why? Well, first of all, where do we rank in the United States when it comes to uh, maternity leave, child care, in relation to the rest of the world? Well, we're not doing as well as we could be, um, and that's for sure. Uh, many countries, uh, wealthy countries, started adopting maternity leave in the early years of the 20th century, so like around 1908. Um, we adopted FMLA uh you know, not so long ago, but unfortunately it's an unpaid leave. And so that makes us very, very unusual. There are um, four other countries, they're all very um, uh, low-income countries that don't offer a paid leave, and the rest of the countries in the world do. Okay, so let me get this straight. We're, we're, we're the United States of America, and we are, we are hanging out with four other countries that don't offer paid leave. Um, but those are like th- those those are countries you might expect to not have maybe the resources, right? So, what what countries are those? Uh, so those countries are Lesotho, Liberia, Papua New Guinea, and Swaziland. Wow. Okay. Well, that yeah, that makes sense. Talk to us <laughs> why why I mean I get the political side of it. I'm a business owner. I get how hard it is to do this as a business, but I also I want my family to be healthier. Um, 
what, what do you see? I mean, I guess I guess having FMLA is a step somewhere. Um, it, it just doesn't seem to be taking us very quickly anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that the paid leave is really the the logical next step, and I do think that there is a lot of support for this. Um, many of the states have started adopting paid leave systems, um, and you know, they use different approaches to it. But you know, they can tap into unemployment funds. Um, they it's been very successful, and the states have adopted it. So it's actually, I think, something that's fairly workable. Um, I do think that there's been a lack of support from businesses, and especially small businesses, that feel um, some strain about, you know, providing a paid leave. Um, this is in part why it could be a good thing for the government to get involved, because um, then it, it is not necessarily just on the backs of the business um, owners. Because we, we've heard about that idea where maybe businesses pay a tax, that tax, or employees even pay um, a little additional tax, and that tax goes into a fund, and that fund then pays for the leave from government funds when people need to take, and they might get some company support or leave, but then they also would, and they'd get the freedom to go, but they could get paid by the government for their leave. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, these kinds of leaves, so some people will say, well, I don't think that this should be um, paid for through taxes because only, you know, I'm, I've decided not to have children. I don't think that um, I want to support other people who have decided to have children. But these, well, there's, there's two arguments against that. One is that children actually are really necessary for our economy. We need future generations of workers. Right. We, need, <laughs> we need these people. They're not, um, there's an economist, Nancy Fulbright, who has this whole argument about how children are not pets. Um, they actually add to society. Um, Glad so. we got that clarified. Okay, <laughs> yeah, but right. I mean, they add to society, and they. I mean, it's there's it creates industry. I mean, it creates toys. It creates activities. It creates more taxes on meals and food. And absolutely, it's you know, like we really we do not want to go down um, the route of um, of not having children. And then the second piece of this is that these kinds of paid leaves could be used for caring for parents, for siblings, right. for partners who are ill. Um, it does not necessarily, we, we don't necessarily need to like um, only have paid leave for parents. We should just be thinking about how family is really central to our society and needs support. Such a great idea. And, and especially with baby boomers and an aging um, with aging generations, we're all going to be needing it some way, one way or another. Absolutely. So is it um, – so overall, like what – who is leading in this? What what country is way ahead and maybe we could use to model some of our ideas? Um, and, and is there any hope? Do we see any places in the country where there's states that are doing certain things? There's definitely been, um, you know, many countries have been experimenting with paid leave for, you know, more than a century. Um, And the research that I've done with my colleagues do suggest that there are models that make a lot of sense. Um, And these are models that um, don't necessarily provide many, many years of leave. So part of what we find is that countries that provide two or three or four years of leave, that actually can have... um, uh, you know, sort of a negative impact on mothers being able to retain employment. Mm. And usually those very long leaves are not paid well. Um, so we're sort of shooting more for the 
Um, short, you know, sort of actually moderate leaves. So very short leaves are not very effective. But sort of a moderate leaf, so somewhere between six months or 12 months, up to 15 months, um, that kind of a leaf actually helps people retain connection to the um, to the labor market, which we need because most families can't survive on one income. Um, but it also allows time to care for children. Um, and so countries like, I mean, Canada has 52 weeks, um, so even just our northern neighbor wow. has, you know, significantly better than we do. But France has 42 weeks. The U.K. has 39 weeks. Um, Sweden is a little bit more than a year. And uh, another really interesting piece of this is that um, when these leave policies are most effective, they actually hold out some of that leave for fathers to take. Hmm. Um, when fathers are taking leave, and not just mothers, it actually makes um, makes care seem more normalized, that everybody has care responsibility. Mm. Um, and it just has very, very good impacts, and it definitely has you know very strong impacts on fathers' bonding and connection to their children. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And then you wonder, long-term, what's the impact of that? What's the impact of sharing the care a little bit more and the bonding that might be there? That might be, I mean, that could be powerful. Very, very powerful Powerful in terms of strengthening families. One of the things we see that in, in countries that, you know, sort of um, focus some of that parental leave on fathers, um, most of those countries also have sick leave days where you can care for family members who are sick. Mm. And fathers are much more likely to take sick leave days if they um, also were in a country that had this sort of paid um, paternal leave set aside. And are these are these? I assume the these longer term or moderate, like six to fifteen months. I assume most of those in other countries are being paid by the government. That's right. That's right. You know, they're paid through tax, taxes, and they're um, just considered like you know, sort of what any. Um, what any industrialized country would want to do to ensure that its citizens are able to have children and able to, you know, support their families while also maintaining employment. The other side of it is that most of these countries also provide some form of subsidized child care. So in the U.S., we're really used to K through 12 being public education, um, but in many countries there's this um, early education, as it's called, and child care that helps support children at these earlier ages, and it's very high quality. So in the U.S., we have a lot of child care available. Um, some of it's affordable, um, but much of the really high quality care is not affordable for most families. Um, and so what these countries also do is they step in and they provide these child care systems that are really, really high quality, but not necessarily, um, you know, really difficult for parents to afford. There's usually some sort of a sliding scale for really young children, and then um, it becomes free at three. Um, mm. And so children three to six are in early education. Um, and again, we see all these really positive outcomes. So, you know, um, child care is this thing that has these wonderful outcomes. It has outcomes in terms of children's educational readiness, um, but it's also like, you know, connected to higher graduation rates, lower rates of teen pregnancy. Um, lower rates of juvenile crime. There's just all of these positive things that happen if we can get children into high-quality 
early education. Oh, absolutely. Again, we're speaking with Joya Mishra, who is a professor of sociology and public policy at the University of Massachusetts. She's talking to us about the fact that in the U.S. we may be a little stingier with our child care and maternity leave, which in the end is indirectly impacting our our families and our family's health and, and really overall the, the country as well. Um, you know what, Joy, I, I look at it too and I think, I mean, these are always kind of also divided political issues as well. But it seems like many times the people that are so supposedly pro-family – might be the first to say, yeah, but we don't we don't want to give maternity leave. I mean, we've got to run a business. And so is there a way to be pro-business and pro-family? And do you see any examples of that? I think there, I think there absolutely is. I actually think that most business owners are, um, they are really well served by these policies. Um, the last thing that business owners need is a lot of turnover as parents are unable to sort of balance work and care. Um, and, you know, you invest in your employees, and you want to be, you want right. to be able to hang on to them. Um, these kinds of policies really allow you to hang on to, to, your, to your really strong employees. Um, one of the things that the California um, paid leave has shown is quite interesting. So many of the small business owners there were really anxious about this policy as it was passing, you know, really concerned about what kinds of effects it might have on them. Um, what has ended up happening is that it's increased productivity in California, so oh, really? it's actually been a really good thing for the economy. Um, there's like sort of a, a negative piece of this. Because the state doesn't have really enough money to publicize this policy, the people who are most likely to take the policy are people who were at firms who already um, was, were providing some sort of a paid parental leave. Mm. So more middle-class professional workers are actually taking the, um, taking the paid leave because their employers let them know because their employers, if the state picks it up, don't yeah. have to pay for it, right? Right. <laughs> right. Um, but for the... Um, but for the lower-income workers, there's been less of a take-up because they're just not as um, – their employers are less likely to tell them, and there's less of an incentive. Um, so, you know, one of the things we want to do is we want to make sure that we, we um, create a system, and I do think a federal system would be one that could be publicized enough so that everybody knows about it mm-hmm. and they can take advantage of it. But I, do, I don't really think that there's a lot of evidence that this um, kind of a program hurts employers. I think that in the long term, it's definitely been um, value added. But it may also, I guess, so it, it may impact even uh, lower income people differently. There might be some discrimination there. There might be discrimination even racially, maybe ethnically, depending on where they're getting their information, how they get their information. But it seems, too, that it would also negatively, adversely impact women versus men. Yes, that's right. I mean, women are definitely much more likely to take the, uh, to take a paid leave, especially around parent, um, uh, paid parental leave. Um, and and if they don't have that capability, so what happens in the U.S. today, honestly, is that many women, um, once they have a child, um, they can't really. They just it doesn't work, and so um, they may leave their jobs, or they may. Um, try to take a brief unpaid leave, uh, but many there's just much more turnover um, among uh, mothers because of the lack of support. Yeah. No, absolutely. 
You know, and and then um, I mean, if you were, you can't. So you have to lose money to go be with your family. Um, you might even lose skills. You might lose opportunity. You might just because you might be, you might feel like you have to quit instead of staying in the company and staying connected and just being on leave. Um, what do we? Is there anything we can just do as uh, I guess everyday citizens? What do I do? As a father, or if if uh, any listener out there that may be you know nearing having a baby, what can they do to make sure that they maximize the leave that is there for them? Well, one thing I would definitely suggest is checking um, checking in your state and seeing what kinds of opportunities are there, um, whether there are any kinds of supports that are uh, you know are in addition to FMLA, which is twelve weeks of unpaid leave. Um, and it, unfortunately, FMLA only works for people who are at certain companies that have 50 or more employees. So there's also um, right. things like that. But most states have really good information that it's just available where if you Google, you know, what are my rights um, and maternity leave, you will be able to come up with, okay, these are, the, these are the opportunities for me. The other thing that I really think is important is that legislators need to hear from us that this is something that really matters to us. So at the state legislature, um, so at the state legislature level, um, your representatives and your state senators, I do really think they need to know that this is something that that people absolutely need and want to see happen. Um, even in the last presidential election, most of the main candidates, Republican and Democrat, had some conversation about um, maternity leave and child care. Um, it was one of the things that Ivanka Trump really talked about. It was certainly something that Hillary Clinton um, Clinton talked about. And so I think politicians are starting to get it in the U.S. I think that they really are seeing that working families need these kinds of supports. And um, and if you're committed to family, you will actually um, move to act. Um, That's so true. I mean, finally, if if you are committed, then you, you ought to get on the game. Get in, say something to your legislators, say something, you know, push voice that it's important for families to be able to grow stronger and be, and have some of this time together. We need a lot of uh, pro-family uh, legislation. We appreciate Joya Mishra for being with us today. Joya is a professor of sociology and public policy at the University of Massachusetts. Again, her research is focused primarily on social inequality and uh, inequalities by gender, race, ethnicity, sexuality, and education level. It's also, think of that, not fair that uh, just those that have companies that are informed and don't want to pay for certain benefits, they're going to make sure that everyone understands the government will pay for it. But other companies won't. Man, we got to figure this out, folks. It's one thing to say you love family. It's another to actually create legislation uh, that's pro-family. So many uh, so many hands in the pot there. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. Up next, we'll be talking about how to put the word co in the co-parenting model. How do you co-parent with your significant other? I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! You know, we talk about uh, loving families and we've got to build families. And you may even do and, and believe strongly in your family that, you know, one of you uh, needs needs to stay home and be with the family and raise your family. 
and there's a lot of pressure to to how do you make ends meet when like we heard earlier it's really hard without a dual income to make ends meet um so at some point we have to we have to really co-parent we have to learn to to be together as parents um on our family issues i see a lot of parenting issues dividing couples up and we fight about things we fight about chores and we fight about discipline and we fight about everything right so at some point we need to we need to figure out how to how to work better together and i wanted to give you some ideas um that uh that that might help as we as we go through life one idea that i think is super important is if if it's not working in your family if you don't feel like you're working really well together um as a as a partnership one of my i, I mean a lot of times we would just blame one partner you know he's not helping out she's not helping out but one of the things that I teach, and it's, it happens to be one of my favorite um, quotes because just symbolically I think it, it means a lot. It says uh, – the, the quote is simply that all systems reflect their creator. OK? So if a system is really one-sided, then um, it, there may be uh, – the issue may not be just willingness from everyone else. It may be that whoever's creating the system has created it in a one-sided way. And an example of this is simply um, if you notice that no one else around the house helps, is there something you are doing that might be enabling others to not help? Uh, for example, have you made it so that the level of of quality for what has to be done can really only be accomplished by you? Or at least it could only be accomplished by you in the beginning. For example, how you clean a dish how you uh, wash something. Um, is it just, have you gotten to the point that it's just easier for you to do it yourself than to not let others do it because they don't seem to do it right? Um, and so, but think about that because almost inevitably when I see somebody who has nobody helping around the house, many times I see that same person being a perfectionist. And nobody in the house feels like they can do it to your level. They don't they, – they've been critiqued so many times. There's too much intensity about it um, or there's fear about how they can get it done. So start to ask yourself, what are you doing or not doing to enable you or your partner to not be as involved in the parenting? What are you thinking that might make it easier to just do it yourself rather than having your partner participate? What did you do uh, uh, parenting a newborn that is nif- different now than the, how you need to parent your teens? I mean, a lot of times we might hand more over to the mother of the newborn because she's feeding the baby. She's she might you know have the baby on her hip more, so she ended up doing more. But when we move into teendom and older kids and toddlers and adolescents, things change. And so, is there a way that we we can actually make that transition? Do you have certain expectations that your spouse just doesn't meet? And uh, do you keep bringing those expectations up? Do you have anxiety about uh, what needs to be done, how it needs to be done? One of my rules is whoever cares the most, whoever has the most you know, energy, anxiety, frustration, issue about something, really I think should be the owner of it. If, if, if you have more anxiety about how something needs to be than I do, then – you probably ought to own it so that you can, you know, go manage it the way you want to manage it. 
But what gets harder is where you have a lot of the issue or anxiety or frustration from it, and um, and you you need to get me involved. That's where we need to start having conversations. Another rule is we got to get on the same page, right? Nothing is more uh, important to co-parenting than than communicating and making that work where we start to have some discussions, some questions, some things we ought to be discussing is what kinds of parents do you guys really want to be? And go talk about it. What roles do you do you want to play? Do you do you want to just we I think a lot of us just default to you know typical kind of stereotypical roles. Dad does the outside stuff, mom does the inside stuff. But I mean you may live in a day and age where those roles don't work for your family anymore. So what do we what roles do we need to play? And what are you guys actually willing to sacrifice? You might even want to create a little ranking process where we can rank how we're doing as parents in our areas on a scale from 1 to 10. Rank how well you're both doing as the the kind of parent you want to be. Sometimes when you measure it, you actually notice we're a little bit off. And then have more and more discussions about how to be and how to improve our co-parenting skills. If if we want to be better co-parents, we can do it. We just have to do it uh, in a way that um, we're actually intentionally focused on it. We don't need to. We don't need more excuses. We don't need more uh, reasons to blame somebody. What we need is we need to put the co in it. We'll continue discussing more co-parenting issues next hour. Uh, but you know, life's not easy. But it doesn't have to be nearly as hard as we make it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier family life. Have you ever known somebody going through a midlife crisis? Why do so many of us go through these uh, these you know impactful moments in our life? Dr. Hans Schwant uh, is a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University's Center for Health and Well-Being. He says a mid-career crisis uh, can happen to anyone. It can hit even those who objectively have the most fulfilling jobs. And we wanted to revisit an interview we did with him so that we could give you more ideas and tools to handle your midlife crisis. I began the interview with Dr. Schwant by asking, what do we need to know about a mid-career or midlife crisis? So the first fascinating finding from the literature is that um, what you just described, this phenomenon that um, there might be the dad that suddenly hates his job and then ends up in a Porsche, that is not just like the misery, misery of like some individuals, but this is a very widespread um, regularity. So hmm. that life satisfaction is high when people are young, then it turns, starts to decline in the mid-30s, and then it bottoms out like between 40, 50, mid-40s, mid-50s, but then it increases again. This is the good news. That and is the good news. It's so, so it really is like a, it's a U-curve, right? Exactly. So yeah. it follows a U-curve, and this U-curve that's observed for men but also for women, it's independent of how many children they have. It's independent of people's incomes and their positions. So it's really found across the entire socioeconomic spectrum. Hmm. So really, it's... This, the midlife crisis is, it should basically just be expected. Um, to some extent, yes. And in particular, um, so the big question that I, I was interested in is, like, if we see it independent of people's life circumstances, like, what, is, what are the drivers of the mid-career or the midlife crisis? And in particular, if it's such a regularity, why does it catch us by surprise? Yeah. 
Yeah, because it, it really does. And then, but I mean, it, I've seen it destroy marriages. I've seen it destroy families. I've seen it, yet it's, there. I guess you're saying there are some things that we could anticipate um, to, to, I guess, mitigate it? Yeah, so the, the um, what, what, I, what I tried to find out was exactly this question, um, what do people expect? Why don't they expect uh, um, um, the, the, these uh, um, lows in their midlife, uh, in, in, the, in their life satisfaction? And to answer this question, I looked at um, longitudinal data from Germany, and that's like an, um, a unique survey that follows over 23,000 individuals mm. for a long period of time, from 1991 to 2004. And importantly, in the survey, people are not only asked their current life satisfaction, but also their expected life satisfaction in five years' time. Okay. So because the same people are followed over time, we can then look at how well people predict their future. And do they predict it very well? So it turns out that like young people um, are really overly optimistic. So when they ask about their future life satisfaction, they don't anticipate the slide down the U-curve, mm. but instead they expect strong increases in their life satisfaction. Okay. Is that actually, just nat- that's just natural being a hopeful kid, I guess? Without- exactly. And there's probably even something positive. So neuroscientists have observed this for a long time, and they believe that over-optimism is um, based on biased information processing in the brain. So they have done brain studies where they... Um, distract parts of the brain, and then suddenly people, young people become um, better predictors of their future. That's um, great. And in general, we see that, that young people often think they will, be le- they, they will beat the average. They'll better be the average. They, they, they'll, they'll be the lucky ones yeah. who get the good job, who have the happy marriage, and the healthy children. It's, it's interesting. So um, we really are overly optimistic when we're young, and we, we are biased. We bias the info to be, I guess, more optimistic uh, and, and then we also think we are not only we not only bias it, we actually think we're exceptional to it. So exactly, exactly, and, and the, 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 this could also be, of course, um, efficient in like uh, in, in people's lives, right? Probably, maybe we wouldn't start many things um, uh, in our life when we are young if we knew, like, maybe we wouldn't get married if we knew that we would divorce right. later right. on with with uh, like a thirty percent chance or something. That's true. So, huh? So this might be something uh, uh, beneficial and not something that we necessarily want to change. However, what happens when we age is that uh, many things don't turn out as nice right. as we planned. So, for example, people might not um, climb up the career ladder as quickly as they expected, or maybe we do make all the career that we expected, but then realize that like the high incomes or the prestige, that they are not as satisfying hmm. as we, as we uh, hoped for. Yeah. And at the same time, that's also what I find in my data, is that the high expectations about the future, they are just downwards. Because, of course, we are learning, right? Yeah, right. That we are just like, have these rosy uh, expectations forever. We learn that things are not as nicely um, and might also not be as good in the future as we always hoped. So this is what makes mid-age or midlife a time of double misery because <laughs> we not only have the disappointments that things don't work out as, as nice as you thought but we also have what i call like evaporating aspirations sure oh you know you're you're hitting reality yeah so your aspirations are evaporating and you're it's kind of like you rode the wave of excitement but you just landed on a beach <laughs> exactly. and you're done 
and, and it's and not and the beach is gross. It's not yeah, a healthy, nice beach. The beach doesn't look that nice yeah. in, in that moment. <laughs> and in particular, that's something paradoxical. And it's that often those who have the least objective reasons to complain, often these people they suffer the most from the uh, midlife crisis. And this is because they feel ungrateful and disappointed with themselves just because it seems so unjustified. Huh. And this is something important because often these people, they don't even dare to tell other people about their feelings because they think that's just ridiculous and that's just something, they, the feeling they should not have. So, it's, so if you're more self-deprecating or more, I guess, um, if, if you're not going to share it, you, you, you keep all of this in and you, I guess you can't process it out, you don't work it out? Exactly, and this is this is also why it's so important to have this public discussion about it. You know, to have like a uh, discussion as we have right now on the phone, yeah. and spread the knowledge about about these very, um, let's say, biological or very natural developments that we that most of us go through oh, at some so point in, in midlife. And um, in response to, to to my research findings, I got people writing me from all over the planet and telling me how helpful it was already just to know that what they are feeling um, is not something they have to be frustrated about with themselves, but that's actually okay to, to feel it. And this, like, this can be a vicious circle, you know, like yeah. if you're disappointed about your own disappointment, then things just get worse. So just by, by acknowledging that maybe it's something in normal developmental stage, and it's also something temporary, this can already be like a light at the end of the tunnel and help you um, yeah, not suffer so much from it. That again is Dr. Hans Schwant, uh, who uh, was talking to us about our midlife or mid-career crises. It really, it's a real phenomenon, isn't it? It's something that, it happens, and it happens to, I think... Um, I think it could happen to all of us. It does happen to all of us. It impacts us differently as well. But uh, one of the things I think we're, we're learning just about life is at some point, change is going to be an inevitable inevitable part of it. And also how we see and, and look at our lives. We've talked on the show a lot about Carol Dweck's research um, that that is about kind of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And it sounds like if you want to get through a midlife crisis, you better be ready for growth and have a growth mindset instead of just fixed thinking, oh, yeah, it's done. It is what it is. I don't. There's no way to fix this. I'll just buy a motorcycle or I'll just buy a Ferrari or a sports car. At some point, let's keep changing. Let's keep learning. Let's keep stretching and growing and adapting to the life that we've been handed and see if we can't uh, improve upon it. And if not, let's look for the good that is in it. That's the other crazy thing. There's a lot of good stuff going on in all of our lives. We'll continue the journey, folks. More next hour on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, when we talk about the fact that you you can hear um, the tonal qualities of the the trust trait, personality trait, isn't that amazing how advanced we are as human beings? We really are fine-tuned machines. And these machines that we all end up uh, playing and, and, and somehow we all are a part of the same culture where we can pick up those traits together. 
Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. And to think that, remember, it was it was a, another trait that we've designed, we've kind of grown in order to be more social animals, right? I mean, we, we've grown and, and developed ourselves um, into this ability to read the tonal quality of somebody and know if we trust their modulation or not. And uh, also we can see if we trust their dominance or not and if we can trust their competency or not. So if that doesn't tell you that we are born to be connected social beings, I don't, I don't know what would. We are uniquely um, developed and, and prepared to be with people. We have um, – uh, we've learned from rhesus monkeys and other uh, research that's been done that we have certain abilities to pick up on, um, on the ability to read people's uh, nonverbal uh, affect and, and emotional affect. We have the ability to actually have mirror neurons where if I'm watching somebody in pain and my brain is uh, actually watching somebody that's that's sad, like, for example, the shootings in Florida or any of the shootings uh, that we and you're watching and you're feeling very empathetic and very caring toward another, we could go into your brain and we would notice that you are in the brain center or the part of your brain that would actually relate to the human emotion and the feelings and that you are actually mirroring the feelings of other people. We've learned that from studies with monkeys and other, um, and other primates. And, and even we all know that for some odd reason, we're fine until someone else starts crying. And once someone starts crying that we really love and we care about, for some reason, our emotion starts to kick in and we start to cry. What that tells you, again, is you're wired to connect. And we can try to pretend like we're not. We can try to outthink it. We can pretend like we don't care. But the reality is we care. And we've got to figure out a way, I believe, to start uh, not just hoping that we can somehow have a shortcut to trusting someone and creating trustworthiness, but maybe what we need to create really more than anything is more of an ability to actually grow trust with other people. So think about it in your life, in your relationships. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? There is a, there's a great book out, and he's been on the show many times, uh, two or three times actually, Stephen M. R. Covey, where we've talked about the speed of trust. And trust uh, to Stephen Covey and Stephen M. R. Covey was two things always. Character, which means you, you have the integrity and the character to do what you say you're going to do. You really just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. And we tend to trust people that have that. But you also have to have the competency. You have to know what on earth you're doing. It's not enough to trust somebody that's just really nice. They also have to bring competency. So think about that with the people around you in your life. Are you trustworthy to your kids? Do you know how to be their friend? Do you know how to connect to them? Some of us as parents, we just don't know how to do it. We don't know how to relate to our children. Some of us, it's, it's a character issue. We don't have the integrity, the character to do it. Some of us, we don't necessarily have the competency to do it. We don't know how to relate. The benefit of all of this, though, is that we can learn this. These are skills. These are tools that we can truly learn and we, we can grow. And I'm going to suggest that if we had a choice for th- something we should probably try to improve in our relationships, if you want more trust in your relationship, I would suggest you forge more character. 
Use your relationship to forge more character. And I'm going to give you a few steps, a few ways to do that in today's Coaching Corner. Number one way to exercise your character in your relationship is to be more wholehearted. Put your entire heart into your relationship again. Now, I get it. It's scary. What if I put it in there and then my wife just gets on Facebook and ignores me? That's scary, right? Then you'll just be rejected. So what a lot of us do is because we're, we don't dare put our whole heart into re, in our relationship because we're so afraid of rejection. So we then have a half-hearted relationship. And if we have a half-hearted relationship, predict the outcome. That's half the benefit, half the intimacy, half the closeness, half the communication, half the connection, half, half of the truth. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, We spend far, um, we spend enormous energy trying to dodge vulnerability when it would take far less effort to face it straight on. One of the things that may keep us half hearted in our relationship is we're just too vulnerable. We don't want to be let down. And one of the rules I suggest, and I, I just did this in a date night. Um, that's basically talking about how to grow a, a, a healthier relationship, higher love, I called it, um, is that we've got to learn to burn our ships. Like uh, Cortez, when he came to conquer, he uh, when they pulled up, they, they, they left the ships and they, they didn't just leave them so they could hurry and run back and, and use them as an exit strategy. Cortez asked that they burn the ship or make them inoperable. So they really took the ships apart. They either took them apart so they couldn't float or they burnt them. And uh, that made it so there was no quick exit strategy from this place. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't just hope to not be fully invested. They had to go win the war. And why that might be important in our relationships is if we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. One of them might simply be the fact that I can constantly blame my spouse for our problems and I'm always looking for, for you know, um, uh, they call it shopping alternatives is what we call it in our relationships. Another thing we can do to, to increase the character in our relationship is loosen your grip. Whenever I feel like I'm too vulnerable to risk anything new, I might try to control everyone around me. And as I try to control them, I might demand more perfection from people. I might try to get my safety and my security, not from my ability to respond to certain situations, but instead I try to get it by making everyone else around me play up a certain role. I want everyone around me to be a better spouse, to be a better child, to not surprise me, to be highly predictable for me. And so I start controlling everyone. I might even demand perfection from everyone. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. When I demand perfectionism from everyone around me, shame is going to go up because what I'm going to do is make everybody feel bad for not making me feel safer. The fastest way to handle uh, life is not to make everyone else around you be more predictable for your sake. But instead, learn to loosen your own grip and handle your own insecurities and work on it. Another great way to work on it is to actually appreciate the gift you've been given. This is one of my favorite learnings I think I've had in the last, I don't know, two or three months is um, a concept given by C.S. Lewis that talks about we all have given gifts. We have things that we've been given that are beautiful gifts that are really awesome uh, for ourselves and our lives 
And then we have what are called the expected gifts. The expected gifts are the things we've always expected to have happen to us. It might be that you've expected that you would get married and be married by now. But the given gift you've got instead isn't marriage. It just might be a really great friend network that, uh, that is very supportive and strong. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Um, and uh, C.S. Lewis talks about an example of imagine that you are in a forest and you go looking for food. When the minute you're looking for food, you immediately have an expectation of what kind of food you, you want to find, right? And so you come across some um, – let's say you're looking for berries, but you come across a mushroom and you don't want the mushroom because you were looking for berries. That's what you expected to get. But if you come across the mushroom, the mushroom is still a gift, it's still food, and it would still be very valuable for you, but it's not what you expected, and so you don't quite like it. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. We might keep walking through the forest and come across other leaves that might be edible, or we might come across you know, other vegetables that are there, roots or whatever, and it's not what we wanted. We were still looking for red berries. I need red berries. And if we go through life and we're constantly overlooking the gifts that are given to us, the jobs that you do have, the kids that you have, the trials that you have, then um, you might actually be able to actually enjoy the things that are given. So one of the pieces of advice is start to identify your great blessings that you've already been handed and start appreciating them and do what you can with the given gift. Ah, start there, for example. Um, one of the great quotes by C.S. Lewis says, The truth is, of course, that one, what one regards as interruptions are precisely one's life. What a lot of us are frustrated by in this world because it's interrupting our life is what life is about, right? The, a sickness, an illness, a problem, a child that's disruptive, whatever it is. Uh, It's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. So there are some basic principles, I think, for all of us. Appreciate the gifts that you actually have been given. Loosen your grip a little bit more and be wholehearted about your relationships in your life. If you do those things, you're going to forge more character. And when we are working with one another and forging character, it's amazing what we become. We all become a little more trustworthy which is the goal, I think, of, of our lives as well. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You and your spouse, do you, do you share a lot of fun activities together? Do you have a lot of hobbies, toys, and leisure time where you two connect? Or do you end up tuning out each other and turning away from each other during those times? I wanted to uh, continue a discussion about what are some things we can do to make sure that we actually share hobbies and, and have some some more fun activities together that bring us together. Uh, one of the things that I, I found, a lot of the clients I work with, they might, one of the partners may have a hobby that the other doesn't participate in. And it seems like that hobby ends up dividing them and that division makes it so they never seem like they can do anything. One might be, you know, a cyclist. And so they're always out cycling and doing their 100-mile cycle trips every weekend. So one of the rules I teach is that we need to energize what you can do together, not what you can't. 
Energy at times is scarce, so protect it, right? And uh, do some things that, and at least identify what you do like doing. Start spending a little more time in your life and your conversations talking about what you do like to do together. What does work? If you like going out to dinner, then make that an actual hobby. Become foodies. Get into the food, you know, get into it, but do it as something that we can do together instead of obsessing about the one thing your partner does that they do without you. If your partner goes hunting, you can obsess till you die about the fact that that's all he likes to do. I lose him all October as he goes hunting, but the reality is. There also are another 11 months that you do a lot of other things. So start building a a really strong list of stuff that you do like to do together, um, things that are positive. Uh, Find out, uh, you know, you you may not go hunting with him, but you might go up to the camp where they hunt and you might go, you know, have a fun time hanging out with a bunch of people up there. It might be that you don't like necessarily hunting, but you like being outdoors, And it might not be that you even like being outdoors, but you like the memories of family gathering and, and, you know, getting your family ready to to send out to go to to go do some of these activities. Another thing you could do is start stretching your marriage by trying new things together. There is some pretty interesting research about the fact that if I do something crazy and energetic, if I jump uh, off with a bungee cord off of a bridge and I do that with my spouse, that's going to create some pretty amazing new chemistry for me, but my body will actually attribute it to the people I'm with. And so that is a simple way to bond myself a little bit closer to others is by trying some new things. A lot of us are so rigid in our minds about what we will do and what we won't do that we don't try something new. We We don't engage in other activities Try something. I remember trying to talk some friends into trying sushi, and now I can't get them to stop eating sushi. Every time we go out with them, all they want is sushi. But something as simple as that could be a, a really interesting new thing that you end up growing together. Remember, too, that you don't need to like something to do it. Uh, a lot of us are in this idea that, you know, life is short, so we need to do exactly what we like to do. But sometimes uh, I like doing things just because the people I'm with like doing it. I may not even participate, but I'll go along and um, I can I can thoroughly enjoy sitting there watching my granddaughter look at a llama for the 50th time. And I'm good with it. Let's just do that. So remember, sometimes it might even enhance your your ability to get close to somebody simply because we are doing something just simply for them. A lot of the hardest things in the world, like going to school, eating healthy food sometimes, exercising, practicing piano or whatever, taking your medicine, it's hard. But we do it because it's good for us. And also, by the way, once you start doing something consistently enough, whether you like it or not, you usually become pretty good at it. Another thing is to find the joy in the being of the activity, not the doing. There is a lot of joy in being together, being supportive, being happy, being selfless, being unified. And a lot of those things are more valuable to us in the end than the doing of an activity. So remember that just being a human being is our goal, right? We want to be being um, involved, being active, being together instead of just human doings that are out there doing stuff day in and day out. So remember, basic stuff. Find the joy in the being, not the doing. Remember, you don't need to like it to do it. 
try some new things together. Stretch your marriage a little bit by doing something different and energize what you can do together, not just what you can't. We will continue learning together, folks. That's why we do the show, to help all of us become and be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, can you remember the last time that you volunteered for something? Hopefully you can, but uh, many people probably can't as U.S. volunteering numbers are dipping. So here to talk about it and joining us live in the studio is Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt. She is a professor of public administration at the University of Georgia and, uh, by the way, has her undergrad and master's degree from Brigham Young University. So she's here to discuss an article that uh, we found about how to get more Americans or how to get more Americans to volunteer. Rebecca, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. It's great to be here. So overall, the numbers you're saying for volunteering, they're dropping nationwide. Yes, at least a slight drop down from, I think, a high of around 29 percent, and yeah. now it's getting closer to about 25 percent. Is that volunteering in any way? Is, like, is there a difference between volunteering in um, maybe like a, like a volunteering for your class versus volunteering for the fire department? Yes, there is. So the numbers that we have, the statistics that are collected by the Corporation for National Community Service represent volunteering through or for an organization. Okay. So it doesn't capture more informal kinds yeah. of volunteering, yeah. helping yeah. behaviors. Um, they've added that in more recently because there was a lot of complaints because it makes some states look bad right. that they have a lower volunteering right. rate than others. But those states tend to have more informal helping going oh, on. Oh, interesting. And is it – it seems like there – it almost was, seems like a, a, maybe this is all in informal. But a lot of churches used to promote more volunteering, do more volunteering. But if those are informal, they may not meet the numbers. Well, that, actually, that um, for. people volunteering for your church would count okay. as part of this. And w- the research also shows that people who volunteer for their church or are active in a church yeah. or even um, belong to a church yeah. are more likely to volunteer in their community for other organizations. Are they really now? And so, um, but overall, as the numbers dip, what do you attribute it to? I would say the most common reason is that's reason that's preventable is problems within the organization. So a lot of changes in volunteering happen because people have different life events that come up, right? They have a yeah. baby, they graduate and move away, they, you know, things change in their lives and they just can't volunteer at that time. But the biggest preventable reason is that within the organization itself, they're not being managed as effectively as they could be. The volunteers tend to get frustrated, feel like their time's not yeah. being used well, and so they decide to quit volunteering or go somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, this isn't worth it. It's too much work to volunteer here because there's kind of this you do it for your heart, but then the last thing you want is some organizational system to get in the way. Exactly. And I always tell, I teach a class on volunteer management. I always tell my students, never waste a volunteer's time. That's their gift to you. Yeah. And so you want to make sure you're using it effectively. But one of the issues is that many of our charities and nonprofits, they don't have a lot of capacity. They tend to be very lean organizations. Yeah. Right. They don't have a lot of staff capacity. And, um, you know, one of the things that they don't, aren't able to afford is a lot of professional development for staff to teach them how to effectively oh, manage and right. work with volunteers. And they're spread so thin that, and then, the, you get the blessing of these volunteers, but you don't have the skill set 
or the tools to manage them effectively. Right, exactly. And that can be a problem because then, you know, the volunteers feel like they're not being, they're not actually making a contribution. Or sometimes it could just be other management problems in the organization. They feel like it's not being as effective as it could be. And, um, you know, they're not being listened to. And Mm -hmm. uh, and partly it's just that the staff in these organizations don't understand what makes volunteers tick. Don't understand why they're there. So they don't know how to meet the needs of the volunteers while also meeting the needs of the organization. It's it's interesting because this is... It's not just free work they're getting, though, but they're also getting energy and hope and mission and purpose. All of these intangibles are tied up in the volunteering as well. Right, exactly. They bring volunteers. They also most volunteers tend to donate financially to the organizations right. they volunteer for. A lot of them will go out and um, do advocacy work for the organization, and through word of mouth, they tell other people about the organization, which is all great yeah. for the organization. Um, but you know, the that resource. You know, you mentioned that this is a free resource. Well, it's kind of not. It's not because just like you have to have people to manage your staff, mm-hmm. you have to have people that know how to manage your volunteers. There's still a human resource capital there that has to. Managed. Is it? Are there management programs for like? I mean, I know there's like managing a nonprofit organization, and you can get you can get degrees and special certificates in it. But it seems like there should be an entire field for managing volunteers. I definitely agree with that. There is there are certification programs. Okay. Um, it's interesting because probably in the last 30, 40, 50 years, professional fundraising has become uh, you know its own profession. Yeah. It's become much well, much better recognized and appreciated in the nonprofit sector. But professional volunteer management has yet to reach that stature. Interesting. Even though they're bringing in enormous resources to these organizations. Oh yeah. So it's still that's still something that's lacking. But there are some great certification programs out there. Overall, how does the United states add up when it comes to volunteering? Are we ahead of the curve? Or are we behind the curve? Where do we fit? Overall, we are ahead of the curve in terms of our volunteering rate is pretty high. Um, so we're about 25% of Americans volunteer in any given year. Wow. The global average is 10%. Um, wow. So there's some countries with pretty low volunteering rates, although it's hard to collect good data on yeah. that in those countries. So we're, we're doing pretty good. We're up there with countries like Canada and the Netherlands and the other ones with really high volunteering rates. Um, but I don't know that we're that great at doing much better than they are at managing our volunteers. Right. But globally, is it overall globally, it's dipping as well? People just aren't volunteering as much? Yes, I think it's a common problem everywhere. I think it's Netflix. Because <laughs> I, I love the idea that, I mean, if I could choose to go volunteer or go watch Netflix, Netflix is just easier. It is. It is. But it's not as fulfilling. Right. Volunteering is basically a leisure activity. So you're competing for other things people could do in their leisure time. Do you – I mean I've seen incredible things in volunteering because I I went on an LDS mission, which is a whole volunteer activity, traveled abroad. But I've also seen fire departments that are run by volunteers – which with a camaraderie that's incredible, really, and it's there's a whole community within the community there. But I've seen um, just other, you know, a lot of uh, people volunteering for charities, other organizations. Does it? I guess in the end, um, what would happen if all volunteering stopped? What do you sense would happen? I would say our nonprofit sector would fall apart. I mean, most nonprofits are actually entirely run by volunteers. Really? It's only a small percentage of nonprofits that really have a lot of money and have a lot of paid right. staff. And so um, all of these great things that are happening around us, I think, would, would well, by small large towns, cease. Small towns wouldn't have a fire department. Right. 
it can't be run by one paid firefighter. Yeah, exactly. So that's scary. <laughs> it is a little scary. Especially if you see a trend of dropping. And I mean, I've even seen a trend in it used to be even uh, I think it was about George W. Bush's days where they started moving away from um, religious offering like churches offering support in the community to more government support. It was just somewhere around there that there was a change. And I thought, wow, that could be really impactful because people volunteering to go support, you know, the inner city is different than just government subsidized or subsidies thrown at those things. Does I mean, are policies impacting this? Are there federal policies, national policies that impact our volunteering? Do you see that impact? There's There have been a lot of federal policies passed to try to encourage volunteering. And we do have one federal agency, the Corporation for National Community Service, right. whose job is to promote volunteerism and national service. Um, and, and I think they've done a great job, but it's just really hard for national federal policy to yeah. really move that volunteering rate um, without really infusing a lot more capacity into the local organizations to absorb these volunteers. Right. So, and that's what the local organizations say. They say, well, you know, some of them are like, we can't take anymore. We can't manage them. <laughs> yeah. So even if we bumped up the volunteering rate, it's not going to help them without more capacity. It's um, it's it's a funny thing. I know that the LDS Church has been putting a lot of time and money resources into building a website for service. So because a lot of people want to volunteer, but they don't know where to go. They don't know where to go get service activities, things that they can go do in the community. Where do people go? So if somebody right now is out there thinking, I I think I need to volunteer a little bit more, how do you suggest they go about figuring out where to volunteer and where to give their resource, their time? I think um, there are quite a few volunteer matching websites out there. So um, Volunteer Match is yeah. one organization that has lists of opportunities. Um, the Corporation for National Community Service hosts a list okay. like that. Um, local, Many local United Ways will do that. Or many communities have a volunteering center who that kind of broker those relationships. Yeah. So I would look and see if there's a volunteering center. And then I think just word of mouth. Talk to the people you interact with and ask them which organizations they know about and respect. And that's a great starting place. Is there a difference, and do you see it in the research? Is there an advantage to being attached to the being attached to the the issue, being attached and deeply buying into whatever the charity is or whatever the issue is? Absolutely, I think people usually choose that mission first yeah. before they choose an organization. So, do something you care about. Yeah. Do something you'll be passionate about. That's what makes volunteers really valuable to these organizations. Is right. that they're passionate about the mission. When you look at college students, because you get to do this every day, um, it seems like there was always a, a great spirit in the college area in the age group to want to volunteer and to get out there and make a difference. Um, do you still see that out there? Yeah, yeah, our college students are really involved. Because in we hear millennials community. are like, Ugh. <laughs> but they are very charitable. They're very outwardly focused. They are actually. They're really. They want to give. They want to give back. They want to do meaningful work. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of our students on um, at UGA's campus are actively volunteering in the community. Our students in our master's program are involved with several local. In fact, they've even started some nonprofit organizations really? out of our um, master's program. That's pretty cool. So yeah, they're very very involved. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt. She is a professor in, of public administration at the University of Georgia, and we're discussing an article, How to Get More Americans to Volunteer. Uh, she co-authored that with uh, Professor Rob Christensen from 
Brigham Young University. Didn't co-author it, but he was involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about, too, when you – I mean, volunteering, again, it, it doesn't have to come from a religious background. It could be anyone, and you can volunteer anywhere. Um, if Overall, do you see a, a certain area that we might need to push more people to volunteer in? Where does volunteerism need to catch on still? That's a really great question. I think a lot of people volunteer for organizations that they have some kind of connection to. So, for example, many parents volunteer for organizations that their children are part of, which is great. Um, I think probably areas where we could see more volunteerism is serving people who aren't like ourselves. So maybe, you know, some middle class Americans serving people who live in poverty or the homeless um, because it's not as natural fit. Uh, You know, they're not it's not something you necessarily encounter in your day to day life. So I think looking beyond the boundaries of our day-to-day life would be a a great place to look to volunteer. I mean, um, uh, we've seen a lot here, even in Utah, too, of um, with refugee families and as refugees, more and more refugees are coming in to be able to serve outside of your community and get into a refugee community. How powerful could that be to start to create bigger changes in this country? Yeah, absolutely. Just looking looking around and seeing where there's need. You know, and some, some needs are out there and they're important, but, you know, it's hard to get people to volunteer. So, for example, like in the 1980s and 1990s, it was really hard to get people to volunteer for AIDS-related organizations because there was a big stigma around that. But there was also a huge need and a lot of people suffering. Well, and by the way, the more that you would get in there, the faster you would clarify the differences that and what's real about what was going on with HIV and AIDS and what wasn't real. Exactly. Just, it breaks down the fears, doesn't it? Right. And it's a way for us to learn more about the other people that are here yeah. in our country with us. Does there what about like um going and doing volunteering abroad? Is that I mean, I, I know people now that do it as their that's their summer vacation. It's their trip. They actually plan to take their entire family to go do service abroad. Is that is that as necessary or do we suggest they stay more in the United States? Does it matter? Just volunteer. That, it, that's also a good question. I think just volunteer. You know, wherever you can go, there's there's needs on our back doors, right? Yeah. Right, right in We've front of us. We've got a lot of stuff going on here. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, it's great to also go somewhere else and volunteer, but there's, mm-hmm. I think if we opened our eyes, there's plenty of need in our own communities that we just don't see. Is, do you sense, because I, one thing I would worry about is growing an institution that was so dependent on volunteering that I couldn't sustain it myself. Is there a problem? I mean, because I, I always think we need more parents volunteering in the school, and we absolutely do. But then we also have to sustain it even if parents didn't come in, don't we? I mean, don't we have to also be able to sustain it? Yeah, well, and I think that's why we want to help our our charities and nonprofits to have a little bit more capacity, right? A little more financial capacity so that they have some staff so that there is that continuity. Yeah, they can keep it going. Right. But we also do want, I mean, I think there's no problem no. with having organizations that are where volunteers are the backbone. So another example would be CASA, court-ordered, right. uh, court-appointed special advocates. Yeah. The, the, their program is entirely delivered by volunteers. It's volunteers that go out and work with these children and collect the information information to take back to the courts, the people, the staff people are the ones managing those volunteers. So it's really the, the government kind of ma- – or is it the government or the the organization manages the volunteers, but the volunteers are doing the majority of the work? Absolutely. And there's yeah. many organizations like that. That's a great way. That's a, that's a great model, right? Because then – and like CASA is an example, and I've spoken for them and done some work with them where 
it's so motivated by mission and purpose because these people are changing the lives of kids. True blue, horrible lives are being impacted that you can stay motivated if you had good management like that. Exactly. And they do. They invest a lot in training the volunteers, training the staff to work with volunteers. They give them a lot of support. And so they're able to recruit and retain volunteers. I mean, they're always looking for more. Yeah, absolutely. But they, you know, they, it's really remarkable how long people will stick with and continue to volunteer for that program. And it's because they invest in those volunteers. Oh, yeah. How pow- and then, by the way, it just gives great resources down the road, too. I mean, part of this is it seems like as – I mean, volunteers are valuable at all ages, but as as you're an aging community, too, with the baby boomers, that could be a perfect time to go get some other life experience and and not have to be there forever, but just go volunteer for a few years learning another skill, another trade, another idea. Absolutely. The baby boomers have a lot to offer. And there's a lot of talk in the research community about um, kind of productive aging and active aging. And this is a great way for our seniors to stay active, to be involved, to share their wisdom and experience, to give back to their communities and to not just be at home and, and, and be disconnected from their communities. Yeah, absolutely. Rebecca, what else should we know? Is there anything else we all need to make sure we're paying attention to when it comes to volunteering and uh, and what should we do today? Uh, I would say go out and volunteer if you're not already doing it, but find other ways to support local charities and nonprofit organizations. And unfortunately, we all hear those stories yeah. where there was some organization that did something wrong and then I think we're sometimes more reluctant to give to others, right. but just get to know the charities in your in your local area and find ways to support them financially with your time, with advocacy, or even with professional expertise that you might have to offer them. Yeah. And you don't just have to volunteer to do, deliver programs. You can volunteer by giving management advice right. or free marketing Doing what advice. Doing do well. Yeah, or that's pro cool. bono legal work. Yeah. So just find a way to give back and to help the community. And that's volunteering as well. That's good stuff. Absolutely. Dr. Rebecca but thank you so much for your time, your insights. Again, Rebecca is an associate professor in the Department of Public Administration and Policy at the University of Georgia. Uh, she received her PhD from Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs and, of course, a master's and bachelor's from BYU. Thank Thanks, you Rebecca. so much for being here. Let me hear, be here. Thanks for being here. Good stuff. We'll continue the journey. Do a little Coach's Corner up next uh, as we continue to discuss how we can be co-parents at even a higher level. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Um, we we all have to make it through life, right? And if if you're so fortunate and blessed that you have a spouse that you are working together with as you co-parent your kids, um, boy, are you lucky because many don't. And, um, you know, I was raised with a single parent in the home and it it actually it's hard, right? It makes things a little more complicated. And if you're not careful, the kids could start leading everything. <laughs> and so we want to learn to work together. Last hour, we talked about some some keys for all of us to be better co-parents. One is to simply, uh, I remember the fact that we got to be on the same page. So part of the co in in, um, co-parenting would be communicating and cooperating. We got to talk. We got to ask some questions. We've got to be pretty clear about what kind of impact we want to have on our kids 
and what roles we want to play and what are you willing to sacrifice as a parent. I've noticed a little bit more and more in our uh, in our parenting that it's it's a little sometimes it's we don't want to sacrifice our lives like you know we don't think our kids should impact our lives maybe as much as they do but that seems crazy right because they do impact and they should impact and uh, sometimes the reason why we love our kids so absolutely much is because we have to give so much to help them have a healthier life. Another tool that I was thinking that we could use to be better co-parents is to start leveraging each other's strengths, right? Most people like to do things that they're good at or, or that they're better at. And so maybe one of the things we could do as co-parents is to let our spouse feel like they're good at some things. If if one of your kids is really good at putting the – or one of your uh, – if your spouse is really good at putting the kids to bed and they do that so well, then let's let them do it. Let them – I mean some are just really good at making memories. Some are really good at telling stories. Some are really good at uh, calming the kids down or um, you know waking them up. Let's find what our partner does really well and then actually hold it up as a strength. Instead of just focusing on a task, uh, sometimes it might be great to let the task be driven by who has the better strength in that area. And it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that you know that's the only person that can do it, or that the other should feel bad about that. But I just I've I felt like I had a special skill as a father of um, helping figure out what's going on with a fussy kid. And either distracting them or changing the mood or changing the situation. So I that's what I would do. My wife was incredible at being more structured and organized. So she would she would create the organization. She would help us create the structure. I might step in and then do what I can do well, um, sometimes just to allay the guilt. My job, middle of the night, get up. She had them all day. She... Uh, fed them. She did all of these things. So once we were bottle feeding, I could do it. It was my job. And I loved that. I loved knowing that I had a role that I was uniquely kind of gifted at. But um, another thing that might help us is while we're while we're seeing our partner's strengths, we might want to remember that it, we really need to hear four positives to every negative. And if you want your partner to be more involved in the parenting, then you probably ought to overwhelm your partner with the positivity. Find what they do do well that really does amaze you, and let's start being very sincere and 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 really appreciate what they're doing. Don't just keep treating this like, well, yeah, it's the least you can do. Um, we, we all need to be involved and feel like we matter. Also, another thing that helps us parenting in our parenting is to use more routines to eliminate the reminders. Sometimes you don't need to keep harping or, neg- or negatively talking about what has to be done now if we just have a, a set routine. The benefit of routines is that they can happen the same way every day, every month, every year as we're growing up. And kids like routines because then they know how the pattern goes. So another name for a routine would be a ritual or a habit. Um, and the, the, let's, get, let's get a set routine for how we go to bed. Let's get a set routine for how we have family time at night. Let's get a set kind of daddy time ritual or a mother time ritual or uh, whatever. Just get a ritual set so that we can start to uh, to get it systematized. 
then it's not a, you know, a crapshoot and a free-for-all every single time we have to figure out the night. The night should not need to be recreated and reconstructed if we could just create a, a fairly simple routine. And again, I have six kids. I understand routines change. And I understand during baseball season, the routine may differ a little bit or during football season or you know during dance uh, when we're doing our dance contests and things like that. It's things change and rituals are powerful. So um, maybe we could try to create a few more rituals. And remember one other thing. As you're trying to work with your partner and co-parent, remember that the apple does not fall far from the tree. So the more that you understand your spouse and their approach to life, it means the more you're going to understand your child. Getting to really get clarity with your spouse is going to help you get clarity with your kids. They share the same DNA. So instead of just offloading and being frustrated and just seeing your partner as a crazy anomaly, sometimes I found the best thing that motivates me is to see my partner as um, really the, the source upstream of my children. So a lot of my children's behaviors might flow from what they've seen me do and they've seen my spouse do. So you don't have to be frustrated necessarily because your partner is different. What you could do is start to see that I need to understand my partner better so I can understand my kids better. And I'm going to invest. Sometimes it's easier to invest in my kids um, than it sometimes feels like with your partner. But there's hope because any struggle I I can master with my wife uh, will help me be able to better master it with my children. It's not – that's why divorce doesn't always work because in the end, a lot of the traits that, that frustrated you about your ex-spouse still lives and dwells inside the hearts and minds of your children. Anyway, basic ideas for co-parenting. Remember that uh, you can learn how to deal with your kids as you learn how to work with your spouse, work with more routines, sincerely leverage each other's strengths, and communicate, communicate, communicate. Co-parenting, it's the way we get through life and uh, still feel like it's a blessing to have these little gifts from heaven, these kids. We'll continue the journey up next. We'll be talking about midlife crises and how to handle them. Welcome back, friends. You know, if you feel like... uh, you know, your midlife, your mid-crisis, your mid-professional uh, career, and yeah, you're not motivated. You don't have as much interest. You you feel like, I don't know what it is. I just need a red Ferrari. I think a red Ferrari would make me happier. You might be going through a midlife crisis. So we uh, w- wanted to go back and revisit uh, Dr. Hans Schwant. It was an interview we did. He's a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University's Center for Health and Well-Being. And uh, he was walking us through um, some keys, some information that's important that we all know about our midlife crisis. And I, uh, in the interview, I asked, how do we deal with a midlife crisis when it's happening? So I think first, like uh, what my data tells or what the research tells us, what happens when people, how do people usually get out of the midlife um, crisis, like the time of double misery, how we, how we uh, framed it, yeah. like the, where we are hit by disappointments and evaporating aspirations. And so what we see is that it's at the bottom of the U-curve. It's like when people are like 
the most depressed, essentially, like in their mid-40s, mid-50s. Um, that's when expectations about the future align with current life satisfaction. So people don't expect further improvements in their life, and they come to terms with how their life uh, played out. Huh. So that's an important aspect. And another important aspect is that brain studies have shown that the elderly brain learns to feel less regret about mischances in the past. Oh, really? Okay, good. That's great news. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's something I think like uh, younger people uh, could learn from the elderly. And for example, there has been like this study, uh, a famous study published in Science, where they played games with young and with um, 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 elderly people, um, where they were allowed to stop the game whenever they wanted, but then there was a profit that was foregone that they didn't get by stopping too early. And then so after they stopped, they showed the subjects which profits, profit they didn't make. And the young brain was outrageous about the missed <laughs> chance. They were really angry, and you saw the heartbeat going um, up, and all kind of like body reactions responded. The elderly brain, there was almost no reaction at all. Wow. Except for a subset of people, of depressed elderly people, like elderly people with mental health problems, they had the same brain response as the young people. Interesting. And so there's a strong um, evidence suggesting that the elderly brain learns to adapt and learns to feel less regret about the past. And so this combination of accepting life how it is, coming to terms with life how it has played out, and feeling less regret about the past, this is what makes life satisfaction increase again. Is, it, is the feeling less regret, is it a chemical thing or is it an actual learned kind of cognitive view of life? So um, what the study suggests is that part of it might really be something in, wired in the brain, like how the brain changes. Oh, because, interesting. Um, it could be that there was like a deeper philosophical reasoning in these games, but these games were quite plain. It was really just like, are you angry or upset about like that you didn't get right. additional dollars or not? Um, but having said that, this, of course, is something that we can learn or this is something that we can yeah. um, um, uh, implement and, 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 and try to to, to also maybe, yeah, teach to ourselves. I mean, just the idea, too, of, I mean, w whether it's just biology or whatever it is, I guess wisdom, um, coming to terms, too, with your life, that's a big deal. And do you, do you have any ideas on what works to help us come to terms with it, like to process it and to maybe just see the good of it? Mm, I mean, maybe we should first think about, like, why there is something like regret. And, of course, we see that, Regret is very important, for example, if you're young and you're studying and then you get a bad grade. Right. It's probably good that you regret and you're not like, oh, whatever, can't change it now anymore. Because you do can change it, right? You, you can make improvements right. and, and learn more for the next exam. But, of course, if most of the paths in your life have already been set and, 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 and there's not a lot you can change, maybe it doesn't make sense to think about all the chances that you might have missed all the things that haven't turned out as nice sure. as you thought. Sure. I mean, I guess that's just, that's survival, right? We, we need to feel regret so we take advantage of life. Exactly. And also probably that's what we talked about earlier, this over-optimism of the young is probably also like a survival or like a, 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 a kind of evolutionary benefit, but then it turns against us in midlife when we see that not everything turned out as nicely as we planned. So 
I guess the best way would be don't get rid of the over-optimism when you're young, but then learn to, to uh, uh, um, live better with maybe some disappointments and live better with expectations that are aligned a little bit downwards. Mm-hmm. And see this as a temporal and, bi- um, and, and kind of very normal developmental stage in our lives. Yeah, and then I guess don't immediately go buy a Porsche when you're in the middle of your... Exactly, or the same like with a job. I mean, given that all of this seems a rather natural, normal development, if, let's say, the um, burnt-out Wall Street manager was, uh, was to change seats with the frustrated NGO activist, right. I mean, neither of the two would probably be happier in the end, right? Yeah. Or like, think of like those who um, suddenly think, oh, not everything in my marriage has been as nice as I thought, so then... Uh, they go for a younger partner, you know, who in, in the end, there's very little to share with and all this, the, the investments and trust and like getting to know each other of the whole past, all of this is lost. The same for jobs, of course, yeah. right? All the expertise that you gained um, will be lost. And um, if that's just a temporary um, disappointment that you have, maybe it's not the best idea to really uh, yeah, change your entire life. Which is why I think it's so valuable to have this conversation because just just getting into the psyche of everybody that the midlife crisis is that – it's that weird moment where our life disappointment meets evaporating aspiration. Yeah. It's normal. It's, 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 it ought to be anticipated. Yeah. I think ideally – the ideal thing would be even if we – would get over the term crisis. Yeah. Maybe I just would, would call it like the times of midlife discontent or mm-hmm. midlife reflection or these kind of terms. Yeah. Um, because it's really not something that, that is so dramatic. Right. And also that's something that I often heard and that you often see also in the data. It's not something that just like strikes one day and is gone the next day. It's really like a longer process. It can take many years. Mm. And this is not what people usually... Uh, have in mind when they hear crisis. Right. No, exactly. I mean, it really is just the midlife reality. It's just you, you become your, – your life becomes more real. The, the f- exactly. And that you can see – and this is also what many people to me in response to the, to the Harvard Business Review article is that those who are out of the crisis, they said that they actually feel that they grew during that mm. time. Yeah. That they like became more reflected. And I think that's a very important takeaway that this is kind of a – it's a period of, t- of your life where you reflect, you re-evaluate your life, and maybe you see that your expectations have been too high in the past, but you also maybe see a little bit like your strengths, your weaknesses. Maybe there are new areas of expertise that you could develop in your job, or maybe there are like new ways to enrich your family or to, to, yeah, to yeah. rebuild um, confidence with your partner. And so all of this can have a very positive side, but certainly not if we just like neglect it as a as a as a crisis as, right. just as something silly yeah. and as something people feel they have to be ashamed of. That again was Hans Schwant, uh, who is a, a professor uh, doing postdoctoral research work at Princeton University Center for Health and Well-Being, teaching us about our midlife crisis. And uh, we're all going through it one way or another, uh, but we can manage our life a lot better, staying focused and connected to purpose and passion and our principles. That's uh, our number two of the program, More Fun, straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life.